What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joins the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. In the golf business, Mark Lai has just about done it all. Golfer, commentator, talk show host, movie star. He was even in a band that sung songs about golf. He's a PGA Tour winner and a major contender in his first Masters. And also the winner of the Order of Merit in a country other than his homeland, America. Take this journey through Mark Lai's golfing world and don't miss the second half of the interview where Mark, or Lofty as Steve Elkington calls him, discusses the rift in the professional golf tours. Lai has become outspoken on Twitter about the landscape of professional golf and I couldn't help not ask him about his beliefs and why. It's an interesting conversation, straightforward and honest. So in the words of Mark Lai, here we go, let it fly. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. This week we've got a great guest, interesting guest, former tour player, former commentator, former radio host, former every part of golf that you could think of, Mark Lai. Thanks for coming, Mark. Well, you know, I'm starting to feel old just by all the, the announcements there. But, uh, yeah, I, and you didn't mention international golfer. Uh, I cut my teeth over in your homeland down in Australia and played a little bit in Europe. And uh, I learned to play, uh, you know, there first before getting on to the PGA Tour. So I have uh, been around the block, so to speak. So, yeah, not many people will know this, and it was just before I started playing golf, so I hope that doesn't make you feel any older. I was, uh, <laughs> I think, 1976, I was nine years old. You won the Colgate Tournament of Champions in Melbourne, Australia, at the beautiful Victoria Golf Club. Tell us about your journey down there, first time there, second year or whatever, and how that uh, event unfolded. Well, I had been playing in some mini tours in Florida, and of course, you're just doing anything you can when you get out of college just to play. My first little jump was over in Europe to play in a four tournament series there. I made two out of four cuts. My first cut ever was at Kranz. And uh, I made $875 finishing 13th there. Uh, so obviously, the money wasn't what was driving me over there. I just would do anything anywhere to play, make a living playing golf. Then when I missed my card the first time, I went down to Australia, and uh, wow, I I just love the golf courses down there, especially in Melbourne. I even like the Sydney courses. Uh, you know, Royal Sydney was great. The Australian Club, where there was a course called Pimble, up in uh, I guess North Sydney. Yeah. And uh, I learned I learned to travel a little bit more uh, because it was about a ten tournament schedule just in the fall. And, uh, you know, it was the real deal. It wasn't like playing in America for sure, but it was a close second, I thought, because the people, the language, I do remember the people there, man, they were betting fools. They would bet on anything, <laughs> these guys. And, and everywhere I went, Bradley, it's like, oh, we got the best greens in all Australia. Oh, we've got the best locker room in all Australia. 
we've got the best of uh, uh, meat pies in all Australia. So everywhere I went, whether it was be Adelaide or uh, up in Queensland or, or Melbourne or Sydney, it's like everywhere had the best of something. So it was really fun meeting people that loved the game like I did. And they were so proud of their country, whatever state they were in or province. And um, that's where I first met Greg Norman. I met him coming off the bus. There were like 30 of us Americans uh, driving from Sydney to uh, through Canberra and on to Bateman's Bay. The total purse was $15,000. That was Aussie dollars. So Aussie dollars were bigger than American dollars back then. They were about a buck 30. And I saw this blonde guy looked like he should have had a surfboard on his shoulders. And I said, God dang, who the hell is that? And they said, oh, that's Greg Norman. He's going to be the best player in all Australia. I said, well, if he learns how to hit a golf ball with that body, it's going to be impressive. And so uh, it pretty much was it. But I think I just enjoyed uh, the camaraderie of the Aussies. They didn't really like us that much, um, but we got along well with them a lot, you know, a lot better than we got on in Europe because in Europe, I don't think they liked us at all either. <laughs> the <laughs> Americans, we had the bad rap, but I enjoyed my time there and played some wonderful golf courses. As you know, Bradley, uh, some wonderful places there in, in Australia. Yeah. I think the Aussies are pretty accommodating like that. I, I guess you going there as a, a young fella, that was something that, you know, when I first turned pro in the late eighties, there was still a good 15 to 20 young American kids that would, come over and play and like you said to get the experience of not only playing golf but different cultures different courses you know it, it's a you know I never went to college so but people say how do you know so much or how do you do it? and I said it's because I travel I learned I learned how to make do and I learned about other cultures you can't some of the things you do by traveling you can't really learn out of a book well that's uh that's pretty doggone true. I think our first tournament over there, we played in Fiji in uh, Pacific Harbor. Have you ever been there? I've been to Fiji, but not to that course. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. That was our first tournament. We flew, forget where we flew to, to catch a plane over there. But I remember sitting next to my good buddy from San Francisco, a guy named John Avendroth, who actually had two stints on the PGA tour back in the seventies and the eighties. And we're, we're sitting right next to each other. We're flying over this this rocky field, and it had a couple of flags on it. And I said, oh, man, am I sure glad we're not landing there? <laughs> sure enough, the plane turned around and landed right there. We were in the middle of nowhere, and it was in a town called, uh, I guess, Nandi. Nandi, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we had to fly somewhere, anywhere. Uh, it wasn't Nandi. It was Suva, and then we took a little bus to the, the golf course, and uh, it was quite primitive, uh, but a lot of fun. Then we went to New Zealand and then, of course, at the mainland Australia and uh, played the real golf courses there. But they're good golf courses in, in uh, New Zealand as well. So the ANZ tour was, you know, kind of divided between both both places. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, I was very spoiled growing up in Melbourne. I didn't realize it at the time until I started traveling a lot, just how good the courses were there. Obviously, I... I know now as time went on, we were really spoiled. And Victoria Golf Club, where you won the tournament, how do you rate that still in your mind as a golf course? Obviously, we all love courses we won at, but as a golf course, it's pretty special, but you, one you don't hear as much about. 
No, you don't. You hear about Royal Melbourne. Of course, we played that two weeks before uh, the tournament in Victoria. And I remember playing uh, Royal Melbourne. I'm saying, wow, this is a big boy golf course. And I remember going to out on the golf course and taking my own shag golf balls out there and hitting two irons and striping it out there. I said, man, you know, I'm playing so good right now. It would be a shame to, you know, not go into the last tournament with ahead of steam and little did I know what was ahead of me. Uh, Royal Victoria finished. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but it finished with two par fives. That's correct. And uh, we started the, the, the whole, the course, the first hole was a drivable par four. So there were a lot of scoring opportunities there. And of course, when you're young, I think I was 22, 23 years old. Um, you know, I was afraid uh, of, of the stars that were over there. It was Jack Newton, who was big time there. I think he had finished second in the British or the Open Championship. And Tom Watson was there. And so that was kind of like a renewal of their uh, uh, playoff thing. And I think in 75, I think Newton and, and Tom Watson played off. I couldn't have my ears off. But yeah, that's right. At Karnowski. Yeah. And so I was, uh, you know, a little fish in a big pond there. And uh, But I got it going. I got it going. I loved, I loved hitting driver on the first hole or three wood, whatever I needed to do. I always got under par early and then I finished strong on those two par fives. And so as, as luck would have it, I, I buried the last two holes to, to win the tournament by a shot. And it wasn't a real popular win because the Arnold Palmer of Aussie golf was right there. And that was Kel Nagel. So Kel Nagel was, you know, he was the guy that everyone wanted to win in some Yankee. They called us septics. Seppos, yeah. <laughs> because it rhymes with yanks. So it's bloody, bloody septic won the event. Um, and then we, I went straight home after that and then uh, got my PGA Tour card. Um, and then I was going to come back to Australia if I, if I needed to play to win the Order of Merit. And it turned out that Greg Norman was real close. And I think he had to win the final event at Adelaide to win the order of merit. And so they kept, I kept in touch with them because now I was on the PGA tour. I didn't want to have to go to Australia, you know, a 15 hour flight and play in a couple of events to solidify my spot. Even though if you do win the, the order of merit in Aussie, you, you got a lot of, uh, little fringe benefits like playing the world series of golf and the open championship. So turned out where I didn't go to that final tournament in Adelaide and Greg Norman finished fourth that week. And so I was able to take the order of merit and represent Australia. Sorry to say for you <laughs> in uh, those two events where I finished first in the order of merit. How much did you make to win the order of merit then? Do you remember? I do know this, the, uh, the final tournament was worth 30,000 us uh, aussie dollars which came out to about thirty-eight thousand us i don't know the exact number uh that i won i do know this is that they took 14 grand aussie dollars out of my thirty thousand dollar check <laughs> yeah so, that's no fun. <laughs> so between that and the party and we had a great party at the bo morris bay hotel um 
you Aussies can drink. I would never keep an open bar again in my entire life because they just about drained the till that night for about 500 bucks. And that was in 1976. Yeah. And at the Bowie so, Hotel there, you'd find a lot of people in there, probably not even golfers. They just all come for the free booze. Yeah, that was it. They were ordering uh, bottles of, uh, of spirits and then ordering out Chinese as well. So yeah, I got hurt. <laughs> That's okay. It was fun. So you, you got your card at the end of that year or early, you know, started playing on tour in 77. Uh, it wasn't, how did you go early on? It wasn't until 1983 that you won a tournament, the Bank of Boston. But yeah. you obviously played well enough to keep your card in between there. How was the early days on PGA Tour for you? Early days were uh, just trying to figure out if you even belong because uh, I remember my first year I made uh, – 22,000 bucks, Bradley, and I finished 100th on the money list. And back then they had uh, qualifying, okay? You had to Monday qualify. The next year with the sophomore jinx, I only made like 13.5. But back then you only had to make five grand total to keep your card because the way the tour was set up, it was set up for the top 60. Those guys were able to continue on the next year and not have to qualify. And anyone past 60 on the money list had to go through Monday qualifying, which was absolutely brutal. It forced, it forced you in those days to play. If you kept making the cut, you had to keep on playing. You couldn't take a week off because if you took a week off, now you'd be back into the Monday qualifying. Right. And the Monday qualifying back then was absolutely brutal. The West Coast, there were like zero spots open for you, maybe five spots and 120 players, something like that. It was that week, that way every week, San Diego, L.A., Hawaii. So if you did get into tournament early and you made the cut, boy, you were not going to take a week off because you didn't want to get thrown into that uh, Monday qualifier till. Right, because if, if you made the cut, you would be straight into the next exactly. tournament. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, if you made a check – um, actually you didn't even have to make a check back in those days. You could still make the cut and not make a check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, so it took me a couple of years to learn a little bit. And then I, in 79, that was my third year, had a chance to win in my hometown of Napa. And I absolutely choked my guts out. I, I played two over the last five holes and lost by, uh, lost by three to a guy named John Fogt, F-O-U-G-H-T. And uh, but then I knew, you know, I was close. And then in 80 and in 81, I started playing really well. Uh, and then that's when the all exempt tour came out. Uh, thank God for J Gary McCord, because he's the guy that floated the top 125 idea. He was a rabbit himself, which is one of those guys that had to qualify every week. And he said, you know, this is just not fair. You know, all these other guys at the top 60, they just walk on each week. They take weeks off. We're out here grinding. So uh, McCord got it passed, the top 125. So thankfully to Gary, uh, we owe him a debt of gratitude. And uh, from then on, I stayed exempt all the way through uh, basically when I retired. Although I did have a bout with melanoma in there. I think it was 92, 93, uh, where I had to take almost a whole year off. But look, it was so different back then. And we didn't care about... Um, we just wanted to survive. You know, it wasn't about how much money we were making. It's if we could make money. Uh, the tour was extremely, uh, I guess, not stingy, but the money wasn't all that good. 
So you played out there because you love the game. And I think that everyone starts this game off, Bradley, and I'm sure you were the same way. You just love the game. You love putting on that glove and the, the spikes that were hitting the, the, the pavement. Love playing the golf courses. And, uh, you know, when we became professional golfers, you know, we're kind of mercenaries, aren't we? We're kind of doing it to support a family, support our life, and to be able to play the game that we love. And I still love the game. It's 69 years old. I'm, I'm going out today. <laughs> you know, so how many, how many sports do you think, you know, I had, I had uh, my financial manager is a football guy, right? He played football at a high level um, in college. His name is Terry Dean. And I, I'm saying, you know, his life expectancy in, golf, in, in football would be about five years. All right. You know, I played, I played uh, for 18 years on the tour until I was 43 and I couldn't go anymore. Um, my body just beat, was beat up. Uh, so what kind of game gives you that luxury to play a complete lifetime like that? And then of course have the PGA tour champions after that and all the nice little bonuses that you get if you do really well in this game. Yeah, that was kind of my deal too. I, I got signed to play AFL football when I was pretty young and, uh, really? I waited up whether I wanted to go with football or golf cause I was good at both. And, um, so, you know, my football career, I'm probably going to be done in 10 or 12 years and golf, I'll, I'll just keep going. So I understand the sentiment there. You know, uh, I'm going to interject something here. And I think we're kind of looking for, you know, when you played the tour and I followed you many times, Bradley, um, we're only on a one year pass. You know, I mean, God help you. If you have a bad year, you could be gone forever. OK, you may they may never hear about you again. Uh, I, I, the couple of guys, Sean O'Hare. You know, and, and I look at guys all the time that finish outside that top 125 and they don't have, uh, you know, status and it takes them a while. I know Aaron Badley has gone through that before, who's a good player, still a good player, I think. I think the world of him. And, you know, I think this LIV thing, I think it's giving guys at least some security where they're not on a year by year basis. Maybe they are. I mean, but I, I look at Harold Varner. And man, can you possibly find any fault in a guy like that going to LIV? He just had a, I think he just got married, maybe just had a kid. You know, Harold Varner, if he has a bad year not being a champion on the PGA Tour, he has a bad year. He's, he's out picking range balls at Gastonia Muni next year. You know, and I think that's something that you have to think, you know, that could happen. An, an injury Look at you know, Will Zalatoris. Who knows what's going to happen to him? You know, we've seen guys that have gotten hurt and hurt and they come back, but a lot of guys haven't been able to come back. I remember Rocco Media was on his last exemption or something, and even uh, uh, Hudson Swafford, he was he was out for a while. He, had, he made his money in his very last tournament to, to stay exempt for the next year. So I think if you get – a three or a four year pass, which I think the LIV is doing, at least it gives you some horizon to say, okay, you know, Hey, I, four years, I, I think I can do that on the, on the PGA tour, unless you're a constant winner out there, you're really starting from zero every year you tee it up and you have Bradley, you know, you, you have a bad start to the year. Maybe you have a bad uh, West coast swing and then you don't get in enough tournaments in Florida now he's saying, oh, my gosh, now I've got like, you know, six or seven months to really make hay here. And, uh, you know, it gets pretty, pretty spicy toward the end about, uh, 
you know, July and August saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm 135 on the list and everyone's playing and I've got to get the lead out right now. And it happens. Yeah. Look at Harris England. What happened to him one year? This guy's a great player. And uh, he finished 148th on the money list. And that's right. Yeah, re recently, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so he had a bad year, and he, he finished 148th. And he tried to, the Q school, I guess, the reshuffle with the uh, Corn Ferry Tour and the PGA Tour guys. He didn't qualify in that. But he was able to get in enough tournaments because of his 126 to 150 standing. Okay? And do you remember that year in the fall? He finished in the top 10, I want to say, seven out of eight tournaments in the fall. And so he, he says, needed that because the top 10 exactly. advanced you. He says, I'm in. I'm in the next year, you know, but not necessarily the rest of the year that he started off in, you know, except for the reshuffle and all. It gets very complicated. But here's a guy who came back and then he became a great player after losing it all. Okay. Uh, he, he won again. He made, was a member of the Ryder Cup team. And, you know, those kind of things happen. Just think if he if he hadn't have come back and, and played well when he was in one of those early events in that top 126 to 150 category. But this happens all the time. And there, I look at guys past 125 on the list. I said, man, that guy was a good player. I wonder how he's feeling right now. Not very well. So I look at the Harold Varners and maybe some of the guys that, you know, are kind of surprising. I think Taylor Gooch was a surprise to me. Uh, when he signed the LIV thing, but I totally get it. Uh, I, I totally get it. Uh, you know, when your family's involved and you've got a chance to basically win the game as opposed to take a chance on not winning the game of finances, I can't fault anybody for wanting to do what's best for them. And uh, unfortunately, you and I never had those options. We had to play it and dig it out of the dirt, like they say, and scrounge around and and uh, struggle. But we made it. We did okay. And it's, it's hard to say what you would do if that was around when we were there, but I have no hesitation in telling people, like, I'm probably not going to win a major. I was a good player, but I'm probably not going to win a major. I'd like to win a tournament, but what's my legacy? Well, my legacy is to make money and look after all my kids and family for the future and, if, if someone gave me the right number, I'm sure, you know, you got guys like Kepka and a couple of other guys that kept saying no, 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 and then all of a sudden they hit their number and they're gone. It, it's it's hard to resist, I'm sure. Well, let's let's be realistic. Um, who's going to have a legacy in golf? Not very many guys, okay? We're talking about the Trevinos, Nicholas, Watson, Arnold, all these guys, guys like Rom, obviously Rory. Um, these guys that have achieved legacy status early, I don't blame them. I, I mean, Brooks Kepka, his legacy is going to be winning four majors in, in two years. You know, that's pretty good, you know, and they're, they're worried. They said, well, if you go to LIV, what's your legacy going to do? Well, who gives a damn? I mean, Harold Varner, <laughs> Harold Varner put it so nicely and eloquently that I said, man, can, can I vote for him for president? He says, this is going to give me a chance to leave my legacy where it always is going to be. And that's making it better for others by me getting more money for the Harold Varner foundation through 
the LIV, it gives me a chance to move outside of Harold Varner, the player, and stay Harold Varner, the philanthropist. And I'm thinking, you know something? Now I know why I like this guy. You know, and if if anybody faults him for taking the money, you know, I just got to say, well, dude, you've never hit a golf shot that meant anything because this game is tough and it can be over tomorrow uh, in the in the blink of an eye, as okay. you know. So I'm going to get back to LIV later, but I wanted to ask you um, or tell you the first time I ever saw you, and it wasn't live, obviously, but in Australia, you know, the time difference and the majors, we'd get up at 4 a.m. to watch the Masters and 4 a.m. to watch the US Open and stuff. And 1984, after you won the Bank of Boston, you got rookie start at Augusta and led after 36 holes. That was the first time I ever saw you. How about that experience? Well, that was that was quite an experience. I, I remember vividly because uh, it took me seven years to get into the Masters. Um, and that's the normal thing, I think. You know, we, we think about guys getting in the Masters in their second year. That doesn't happen um, unless you're really a world beater. But I, when I got there, I went to my caddy, you know, who was working for me at the Bank of Boston and all this stuff. And we finished on Wednesday night practicing three practice rounds and i said john i hope you're ready to leave on friday i said because i cannot figure this place out i cannot figure it out it is so much local knowledge so many breaks that you have to learn in a short amount of time and uh what happened on sun on uh, wednesday night was that it rained it slowed the golf course up enough to where i had a a, a, a chance and i remember shooting 69 the first round and I got in that that day fairly late. And now I'm playing late again. Uh, they paired you according to your score back then. You didn't have an early late thing or late early. I played late the first round and I played late the second round. And I got in um, early on or about maybe 11 or 12 on Friday after shooting 69. And I was paired with Yasao Aoki who you know, uh, coincidentally had my old caddy, a good, big guy named Brian Bellinger, a Brit. You may remember him when Aoki hold his wedge shot on the last hole at uh, Hawaii to beat Jack Renner, big blonde guy. Yeah. And so anyway, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in the locker room and in comes Calvin Pete. And I know Calvin Pete shot like 79 the first round and he sits down right next to me. And I, and I was, going to console him because I figured he'd miss the cut, you know? And I said, so Cal, how'd it go? He said, Mark, he says, I can't believe it, man. I shot 66 today. <laughs> I said, how in the hell can anybody shoot 66 on this godforsaken place? I, I said, Cal, let me shake your hand. That is one hell of a round. Well, damn, if it, that seed didn't get put in my little head and I went out and shot 66. Uh, in the second round, I had the lead by three and believe it or not, Bradley, it could have been lower. So Friday we get out there and I've got it going again. And then I, I just made a, a double on nine and I had a three or four shot lead, doubled nine, part 10, part 11. And this is on Saturday now. And we get on 12, hit my shot on the green and they just, the heavens came unloaded on us. They wash us out for the rest of the day. So I carried the lead going into Sunday. 
I had to get up early on Sunday morning, play the final six and a half holes, and then have a little five-hour nap and then go out at uh, 340 the next, you know, in the afternoon and tee it up. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, I made a couple bogeys and a double bogey, the final two hole, the final six holes, and Tom Kite birdied the 17th hole of the uh, third round to take the lead from me. So he had the lead, but I was in the last two ball on Sunday and I did birdie the first hole on Sunday. So I had the lead <laughs> tied with Kite for 17 holes. I ended up shooting 74, but it was a good 74. <laughs> so it was uh, pretty much the highlight of my life in golf right there that year. And you came sixth in the end, yeah? Correct. Yeah. Lost by five. Crenshaw was in the group ahead. And uh, if you ever watch replays from 1984 in the Masters, you will see nothing but Ben Crenshaw picking the ball up out of the hole from 20, 30, 40 feet. It didn't matter. It was absolutely sickening. And Tom Kite was playing with me. So every time Kite would be shaking his head, damn, he made another one. How does this guy do this? <laughs> he, I think he held like a 15 foot of three second putt on 14, didn't he? Yes, he did. And I'll tell you what, what this was the, the moment I will never forget. I'm on the 10th fairway. Tom Kite's on the 10th fairway. We're watching Crenshaw putt from the front edge of the green to the back edge. The flag stick was back left. I was two back. I just birdied eight and nine. I'm thinking if I have the nine of my life, I could be walking out of here with a green jacket. Crenshaw's got this putt on the front edge of the green. I said, there is no way he can two putt this putt. It's 60 feet with about 10 feet of break. And dang, if this guy doesn't hit his putt, the left club the in his left hand, the club goes up in the air as he's waving it into the hole. <laughs> he knocked it in the hole from there. That's a famous putt. They sort of show that all the time. If, if, if you oh. watch the Masters, it's always on. And I was the guy that was back in the fairway with my hands on my hips saying, what the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, it was they, they always say, you know, maybe golf's lucky, but he obviously not a lucky putter to make as many putts as he did. But to make that type of thing in the moment is like exactly when you need it. That, that takes a little special stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about the green jacket, but I've got to touch on this. You actually got a gold jacket in a movie, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You know, um, I used to stay with a gentleman uh, and his family in uh, Phoenix, and this is what why golf is so great. I played with this guy who owned a car dealership or two in the Phoenix Open when it was at uh, Phoenix Country Club, and his name was Bob Simons. We got along really, really well, so I stayed at his house every year since then played in the Phoenix open 18 years in a row. And, uh, Bob Simons was his name and he had a son who was in diapers at the time that I met him. And he became the producer of all of Adam Sandler's movies. And his people got a hold of me one time and said, Hey, Adam Sandler's doing this golf movie. Would you mind reading the script and see if we can actually get away with this? Well, the movie, the script, the way it was written out was just stupid. I mean, it was crazy. And I just said, I can't. There's just no way, guys. So they said, well, we want you to revise it. So I did five script revisions. OK. And I said, finally, after the fifth one, I said, guys, I think you can get away with this, but I don't know what you're going after when the caddy picks up the ball marker and starts eating it. I just I don't think that's going to go well. 
but they were uh, they were going to have the green jacket. They were going to have the blue jacket for the U.S. Open. They were basically desecrating every every uh, you know hallowed ground in golf that we knew. And I said, I don't think I would go there. You may want to go with the Tour Championship and go with a gold jacket or something like that. And so they wrote it into the movie, and then they wrote me into the movie because I was going to be up in Vancouver when they were filming. And they said, we want to write you in if you can get there. At the time, I was working for the Golf Channel. And I met everybody there. Shooter McGavin was hilarious. It was, it was like the funnest day of my life. I guarantee it. These guys have so much fun shooting movies, especially Adam Sandler, because that guy was a kook. And when that movie came out, my best buddy was a guy in the, in the Blues Brothers. His name was Donald Duck Dunn. Donald Duck Dunn, he smoked a pipe in the Blues Brothers. He played for Belushi and Aykroyd, Clapton and Booker T and MGs and San and Dave. And, and so, of course, he was in the Blues Brothers movie. And so I said, Duck, his name is Duck Dunn. I said, Duck, would you go with me? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll check out Happy Gilmore. And so me and him and his wife, we went to uh, where he lives next to Paul Azinger up at River Wilderness. We went to the movies. We watched the movie. And I said, so, Duck, what do you think? And he looked at me and he said, Mark, that movie sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know something, Duck? I don't know. But it's 26 years old, right? And I'm still getting checks. Can you believe it? I'm it be, it became checked. a cult Every movie. Quarter. Huh? Yeah, it did. Every quarter I'm getting <clears throat> SAG checks from L.A. and international checks. They're not very big. <laughs> I mean, you could go, you could have a, you know, a nice family dinner at McDonald's on every check. But that was a fun movie. And uh, Adam Sandler, God bless him. I don't know why he chose me. And uh, and. I have seen Shooter McGavin, Christopher McDonald, a couple times since then. Uh, and at Shooter, he go he does more gigs as Shooter McGavin than anybody. Uh, <laughs> you know, thinking that he's been in like a hundred movies. I saw him at a baseball game here in Fort Myers. It's for the Fort Myers Miracle, and they said signing autographs is Shooter McGavin. Uh, come at him during the seventh inning stretch. You know, so I went up and I saw him and I said, "Man, you get all the big gigs, don't you?" <laughs> I, I remember I was in, so 1996, that was the year, wasn't it? It was filmed or debuted. Yeah. So I was playing, uh, I had my, I don't know if I had my PGA card, but I was going to Europe. I was flying from New York to Paris. And I don't sleep good on a plane, but I managed to fall asleep on this flight. And I got woken up because everyone was laughing on the plane. And, of course, I sit up and I think, what the hell's going on here? So here's this Happy Gilmore movie up on the screen. And the whole plane is in hysterics. So I sit up and watch it and joined in the fun. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. I didn't even know it was it was such a movie. But uh, and I obviously I saw you in it and everything. So you only spent one day on set. Yeah, just one day on set. I finished a tournament called the Carbide Classic, where I played in the event, and then I uh, did a couple of pieces for Golf Central, and then the next day I stayed uh, in Vancouver and did the movie, then went back to Orlando to work like a slave, which I was <laughs> for TV. So you, you mentioned uh, the band with Blues Brothers and everything. You've got some guitars up behind you there. People can't see that when we're talking, obviously. But tell us about uh, the band that you were in too, that uh, I know it, 
yeah. maybe not pe many people know it now. Jake Trout and the Flounders. Yeah, we did a we did a fun thing one night at uh, the players the, the players championship. They always had a a seafood buffet at the, the Ponte Vedra Club, and they had a stage set up. And Peter Jacobson and myself, Payne Stewart. Uh, John Inman was also in it, and Larry Rinker. Larry Rinker knew the band because Larry played a lot of guitar and did a lot of singing and things like that. Not a very good singer, but a really accomplished guitar player. <laughs> but Rinker says, "Hey, why don't we uh, why don't we do a couple of why don't we work on a couple of songs and uh, you know because we'd been to that banquet before, and so we thought it would be very cool to have some players up there doing some things. And so Peter, you know, he was a singer." And Payne played harmonica, and I played a lot of guitar, and so did Larry Rinker. So that we worked out three songs, um, and we played them, and it just kind of like kept on steamrolling. Um, and then it got kind of serious. We did the first record. It did okay. And then we kind of disbanded because everyone was still in their prime. I mean, our first record was in 1987 or 1988. I think I have the CD. Uh, well, there's a the CD came out and we, our first was a cassette, okay, <laughs> and the second one was a CD, um, and that was the serious one. And in that time, uh, Larry Rinker had unjoined the band, and that was just Peter Payne and myself. But we had actually done a lot of things, like at Mark Rolfing's event, uh, Mark Rolfing's event in Kapalua. It used to be called the Lincoln Mercury you know, Kapalua Invitational, we did a gig with the Blues Brothers without <laughs> Belushi and Aykroyd. So, um, you know, Eddie Floyd of Knock on Wood was there and we did, you know, six or eight songs. And then we did a couple of other shows. We did a show with uh, Glenn Fry uh, here in Fort Myers. I had a big golf tournament uh, here. It's called the Southwest Florida Golf and Music Festival. So it was Peter Jacobson, myself, and then we had our our band and then Glenn Fry's band and Jimmy Buffett's band. We did a huge show here uh, that sold out uh, and it was uh, done jointly with my golf event. So we had a chance to really do some cool things. And I think our biggest claim to fame was when we, uh, we were actually fronted by Hootie and the Blowfish. It was at <laughs> Kiowa Island. Do you remember do you remember the uh, World Cup was at Kiowa Island one year? I played it. You did? Okay. Yeah, I played that tournament. You are kidding me. I played for so, Australia with uh, Wayne Riley was my partner, Radar. Wayne Riley, the crazy man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we get out there and there's a big tent. You, maybe you were there, maybe you weren't. But there was a big tent in there, and so we're supposed to go on first. Jake Trout and the Flounders, we had a group called Duck Soup that was playing behind us. They were a real band, but we had our golf songs. And so Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish comes up to us, Peter and myself and Payne, and says, hey, guys, everybody get way too drunk in here, so we're going to be the lead-in band, and you will play behind us. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> fine, Huey Lewis and the – New, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish are warming up for Jake Trout and the Flounders. So that was our claim to fame. And that was a fun night. I remember that time we saved a whole table for Monty. Okay. They said, got to save a table for Monty because he was the big guy. Right. 
he was, you know, one six order of merits over there or something. So he saved this whole freaking table for money, and the sucker never showed. <laughs> we were so we were so pissed off. <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, that was Jake Trout and the Flounders, and then of course, you know, we lost Payne. Uh, that was that was just a tragic thing. I don't know if you knew Payne that well. He was he was a, a wonderful guy, and uh, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was quite a time. They were good 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 times with Peter and Payne. Yeah, I was fortunate to play with him a couple of times, and obviously knew. Um, I didn't know Tracy so well, but I knew his brother-in-law Mike. I used to play a lot with Mike from I think, Ferguson, Ferguson. From Australia. Yeah, always had a great smile on his face. That was that was not a good time. So you know, obviously, I teach now. So I just wanted to ask you a question. This is a little bit more specific for some of my students because you are tall. What's your height? Six two. Okay. One ninety five. But back in those days, you you were much taller than the average golfer, weren't you? You know, there's a lot of guys around the five nine. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was only one hundred and sixty five pounds, maybe one hundred and seventy. Yeah. So I look like a string bean out there. <laughs> So and, because of that, what did you have to do? Did you do anything? Like I said, this is more for taller students to understand. What did you have to do specifically to, um, to get down to the ball, I guess? Knee flex, uh, different, different ideas, shorter clubs, longer arms, you know, whatever. Well, Bradley, I, I learned to play the game watching guys like Weisskopf and Watson and watching how they flex their knees all the way through the ball. And uh, so I had a, a pronounced leg move, a knee move. And it took me a while to figure out. I think I finally started swinging better in the early 80s after saying, you know, this hooking and slicing thing doesn't work. My legs got to be more stable. As a tall person, you feel like you're more, you know, knees and elbows. So I became more of a body swinger later. And I felt like the big muscles couldn't uh, uh, choke as much as the little muscles. So I became more of a body swinger, more like a Hal Sutton, believe it or not, because when I played with Hal, I just really loved the way he turned on the ball and his misses were very manageable. With a tall, thin guy, I mean, even the best tall, thin guys hit it sideways. They, we just did. There was just too much going on is because we had, I think, you know, I looked at George Archer. I mean, I caddied for George Archer one time and he couldn't hit it a lick. I'm telling you, <laughs> but Weisskopf was kind of the guy. And then Johnny Miller was kind of a tall guy and uh, he kind of lost it, but I became more of a student of the game and I went to everybody. I mean, I went to everybody just one time, Bradley, just to kind of like learn the thing. And the guy I identified more with, and he's a guy, well, I identified with his technique, and you're going to die when I tell you this. Jimmy Ballard back in the early middle 80s was the man because he got guys on top of the ball. And back in the 70s and the early 80s, it was more hitting it with the knees with the inverted C. Yeah. Um, and I think Jimmy Ballard refuted that. And he said, no, man. He says, you can't do it. You've got to cover the ball. How are you going to cover it if you're back in there? And so I started thinking about the covering the ball. And I went to a couple of his guys. One was a guy named John Rhodes. 
Another guy was Dell Starks. And so I would just kind of like see what worked for me. And I became a much better player when I started incorporating more of a body swing than more of a hands, knees, arm swing. And I, I do remember Brad Bryant. I played college golf with Brad Bryant. And then we played in the 80s, you know, together. And then one time we played in like late 80s. And he said, man, I haven't played with you in a long time. He said, you swing a whole lot better than you used to. And I said, I think that I've kind of like maybe turned the corner. But it's a, it's a work in progress, Bradley, as you know. And so I became more of a, a center of, uh, I guess what Garrett – Larry Rinker would call it as an upper core player Correct. Yeah. rather than hitting it with the legs. Yeah. I became a more of an upper core player. And to this day, that's the way I play. Um, so I would tend to, and it all depends on body style. As you know, if you're in Woosnam, you're using everything you've got, right? Your legs, your hips, your shoulders, everything. I wish I could swing like Ian Woosnam at six, two, you know, that's what I try to do. Maybe that's not the right thing. But I looked at Weisskopf and I looked at, at Tom Watson. You know, Tom Watson had a tremendous leg drive. And I think he changed it a little bit the more he went on. And I don't know if there's been a better ball striker out there. It, I mean, even in, later in his life, I mean, that guy was pretty damn solid, Tom Watson. Um, so he had changed. And we just lost Tom Weisskopf, you know, who I thought was the god of all golf swings. But then... When you start looking at his swing, there were some there were some flaws in there, um, but I think guys like you that have really been there and done that, you know, you look at a patient or a patient, right? You look at a player and you say, "Man, this is a body style for this," and I don't know if my technique will work for that. You know, you may have to improvise a little bit, right? Depending on body uh, type and strength and things like that. Sure, absolutely. So, um, what I was going to say is with your old swing, did you tend to overhook the ball or get blocks because of the leg drive? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the club got stuck behind me. Yeah. So, you sort of got the club more in front, body on top a bit more, and got the ball more direct and maybe a little bit of fade or, you know, less shape. Correct. I, I, I honestly think that the <clears> thing that made <throat> the most sense to me is to return the club to the center. And that means the butt of the club is going to be returning somewhere near my navel. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't, I, that club used to be so far pointing at the hole near impact for me that I would have to slap it back into shape. All right. So a lot of times, um, you know, I had a, a slap fade out there that was kind of a block fade uh, that I just survived with. But then as I got better and started using the bigger muscles, I hit the fade properly. It was a, it was a staying on top of it type of fade. And the hook was just totally gone. I never I, hooked the ball. I love the idea of you talking about your belly button. I, I teach that in a lot of my drills and I, you know, I call it the, the body center is the chi or the danchian. And you'll find that most of the good players, as they release the club, the butt of the club was lined up to that area. Like you said, there was no big forward shaft lean and stuff like that. So that's a great little point or tip that you made there because it makes me sound really clever. <laughs> well, good. Uh, you know, a guy that just emulated that so well, who I believe went to Ballard a lot, was Curtis Strange. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not a power game. And, of course, it wasn't a power game back in the 80s when Cal Pete and Curtis Strange were winning tournaments, not hitting it very far. 
I mean, they weren't – Cal was short. Curtis wasn't. But it was more of a position game why Curtis won all those tournaments that he did. And Cal Pete won his – you know, all of his tournaments. Then all of a sudden, I want to say in the <clears throat> middle 90s, it just became totally a power game. And now it now it's, looks like a foreign language to me is what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, Pushing I call it, you know, the game we used to play was uh, – the game we used to play was – Chess, and now it's become checkers, basically. It's become what? Checkers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Used to, you know, chess, make you play here, make you play there, and now it's just go anywhere you want and finish the rest. I, I got it. And I just want your opinion on this. Um, do you think that because of the force that's being built up in some of these guys, and I look at Will Zalatoris and I look at Justin Thomas, they're such slight guys and they hit it so far. I just don't know how they're going to last like say like somebody like a Hertzer or somebody like an Elkington right. or somebody like a VJ Singh. It looks to me like they're going to be like the stars that flame out early to me. I could be wrong, but uh, I think the power game has got its definite bonuses, but it's got its definite negatives as well. What are your thoughts? Yeah. It's more of a short term thing. Like, like you said, I think Justin Thomas has had wrist injuries. He always seems to have his wrist taped up. Jason right. Day, you know, and now Zelatoris with his bag and Kepka's knee and things like that. So when you swing in the club that fast, and, of course, when we played, the club weighed three or four ounces more, a driver. So we couldn't swing it. Or maybe we could swing it just as fast, but the club head was never going to get past you as much as it does today. So when they're swinging so hard from the top in an all-out velocity attack on the ball, you know, we played more acceleration swing than a velocity swing. We were trying to keep that club continuing to move and not slow down, whereas now they're creating as much speed as they can. And then at the bottom, we seem to see a lot of people stall out. They jump their feet are up in the air and the, the club just goes right. winging by them. So when that club is winging by, that's not good for your wrist. And when you're jumping away from the ball, that's not good for your back. So 100%, you're going to see a lot more injuries come on some of these people. Kind of pay me now or pay me later type of thing. <laughs> I think uh, the stars that burn out the quickest maybe burn the brightest for the short amount of time. And then I like, you know, the Mack truck thing. I like the guys like Ernie Els that are going to last forever with with the action that he's got there's no violence there um you know i mentioned tom percher has had a sweet swing he's now in his 70s uh, and and elkington my you know my old roommate i i look at him and i remember when i was working at golf channel i was in my early 50s and maybe elkington was in his early 40s i think we're about 10 years apart and i looked at elk i said dude what what are you still doing out here he says lofty he calls me a Lo uh, loft lack of effing talent okay <laughs> yeah and he says lofty he says lofty he says these guys didn't know how to play golf lofty he says they're just throwing it out there he says they've got no no chance you know and and you know okay made steady money all the way through his late 40s you know and beat them the way that you should beat them through position and you know it's always like the tortoise and the hare i'll take the the hare anytime or excuse me, the tortoise. All right. Uh, the hair's going to just flame out. So anyway. I'm going to get off topic for one question because I've never been able to ask this to anyone before. You oh, well. were born in Vajayo, right? 
California. Vallejo. 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 Well, yes. I, I said it with an Australian accent. But <laughs> were, were you around when the Zodiac Killer was around? Yes, I was. Right. So I what was, was definitely the, around there. Yeah. How do you remember uh, that time? Yeah, he was in the Oakland area, Bay Area, they called it. Napa was about 40 miles away from San Francisco. And that's where it was all happening. And this, you know, we had uh, hate Ashbury. We had a lot of bad things going on in California. There's a lot of corruption going on out there, unions and things like that. And uh, yeah, those weren't good times. Uh, but that's why I moved to Florida. <laughs> Got kind of crazy out there. I played for four years while living in Napa on the PGA Tour. I represented a club called Silverado where they happened to be playing this, um, you know, the first week of the new season. And uh, that was my home course. Now Johnny Miller owns it. And uh, after, you know, four years of playing, living in California, I said, man, I can't do this forever. I've got to move out east. So it seems like uh, Florida, where I live in Naples, fits me more personally and uh, politically, definitely. Uh, it's more conservative out here. And uh, my mom, for example, who is now 90, just two years ago said, I can't take it out here anymore in California. So now she's with us. And uh, but I am going there this week. I do miss it out there. I right. miss my, you know, some friends and I'm going to actually play Olympic Club uh, a week. I'll, I'll be playing it uh, on the 20th of September. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode. Bradley Hughes Golf offers you countless ways to become better at this infuriating game. Go to BradleyHughesGolf.com to see all my lesson options for online or in-person instruction. If visual help is more your style, then you should sign up for my members site, BradleyHughesGolf-Members.com. With over 500 videos and articles already on display, the member site is the most interesting and most informative platform on the internet for all things golf. My three ebooks, The Great Ball Strikers, The 430 Path to Great Golf, and Ben Hogan, The Secrets to His Success, have all received five star ratings and are the most insightful reading material you can utilize while on your path to improvement. With diagrams, images, and click on videos, you'll be enthralled with the descriptions and details that these books contain. See BradleyHughesGolf.com and look under the eBooks category under the Lessons tab. Bradley Hughes Golf, where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. So now we're going to get to our main topic. How we came about making this podcast is Mark and myself are both on Twitter. And we talk about the golf and different ideas and things, and we've both been questioned by several people about our views on the LIV versus PGA Tour stuff, but I'm in the boat that I just like golf. I don't care who it is, what it is. You know, I love the golf, but I do see a lot of um, people get very offended when you mention anything with LIV. They're not golfers. They're just your general fan. So I don't understand why the animosity between a PGA Tour and LIV. I mean, obviously, one is upfront money, one is not. And I always thought that was one of the things we touched on this a little bit earlier, that if you're an entertainer or if you're a golfer, you are still in the entertainment business. You are going out putting on a show for people. So why shouldn't you get money for doing that? I, I just always found it a little bit 
disheartening to play a tournament, miss the cut, put on a show, be part of the deal and come home minus $7,000 for the week. Would you agree with all that? <laughs> Wholeheartedly. Um, and uh, you know as well as I do that it ain't all roses out on the PGA Tour, especially financially. Um, but this this uh, attitude where they don't feel like they feel like golfers ought to prove their worth every week. I mean, do we ask for a rod to prove his worth every week? Do we ask for Michael Jordan? Did we ever ask for them to prove their worth? The fact that golfers should be paid now for appearance money. I've always agreed with that. It doesn't mean we should get rich with appearance money if you're really struggling. But what is wrong with it? Is, is my is my take. And people seem to be offended. They're saying, oh, well, he's going for the money. Well, isn't that what we're doing? Do you think that, be, and now that they're getting the money, like the Taylor Gooches and the, the, the you know, whoever you want to mention out there, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, you know, all these great players that are going, they're doing it because, you know, these guys aren't idiots. You know, they love the game just like you and I love it, Bradley. But for them to be chastised and for them to be excommunicated for the PGA Tour. Look, I've been a member of the PGA Tour since 1977. I still have my card with me. I have my money clip. I join every year. But do I agree with everything the PGA Tour has done? Hell no, I don't. I think they were very unfair to Greg Norman back in the 90s when he thought about this world tour idea. Uh, they beat him up then. They beat up another guy named Danny Edwards who wanted to find out what the tour was all about. Uh, Larry Rinker was another guy that threw up some flags. And I've seen this before where anyone that confronts the tour is all of a sudden a bad person. And uh, they don't know what they're talking about. And we need to. So, so my thing is that how can you fault anybody, whether it be you, me, or Ernie Els or whatever, for doing it for the money? Because that's kind of like what it takes these days, isn't it? Yeah. It, it takes the best tour. Why, why did the DP players come over here and play? Sure. Why did Rory come over here? Because of the money. And I, I just think it's very hypocritical for some of these players on the other side of the PGA Tour side to say, ah, oh, he's doing it for the money. It's not competition. Well, I don't think Mahomes is trying any less because he's now all of, a sudden, all of a sudden got it made. In football, he's made $500 million, right? Oh, so I guess he's just not going to throw any passes anymore, right? That's not the way athletes work. And golfers are athletes. And Bradley, when you put a number next to your name and it's in the paper, the money doesn't make it feel any better when you shoot 79, okay? <laughs> At least it did to me. So that's where I find it's weird right now uh i just think that there's such animosity between the two sides like you mentioned that i don't get where the other side is coming from if you're sergio garcia and you've done what you can do Ryder cup pga tour won a major what on earth would you have against sergio for going to liv where he can have a parachute a golden parachute landing same with Phil Mickelson. Same with, uh, you know, you mentioned Brooks Kepka. I don't think Kepka's best golf. 
well, maybe his best golf is behind him, but I still think he can play some great golf. Um, so my deal is why beat up on a guy? Why take him out of the, uh, why excommunicate him from the PGA tour? Uh, if he joins LIV, I just don't think it's right. There's some pretty weak arguments, you know, like you said, that, well, they're not going to try as hard, but you know, I know too, as an athlete, that's what you're there for. You want to give it your best, no matter what, you know, when you first start playing, you're not worried about the money. And when you play and you're not worried about the money, but it's nice to have, obviously that's the ultimate goal, but it's not the, the end game that you're trying to do when you play. And then the other one, um, like you said, was the, well, the LIV is all the older has-beens. I could reel off 10, 12, 15 guys that aren't old has-beens and are still top of the world. I think someone threw out a stat, 12 of the last 24 majors have been won by LIV players. Yeah, all washed up, right? Um, and just in this last BMW tournaments, uh, tournament, nine of the top 25 players were all LIVers. Okay, I, I counted them all down, you know, and and so to me, they're in the thick of things. Look on the PGA Tour, there are some has-beens, <laughs> you know, and there are some guys that shouldn't be there. And maybe on the LIV, maybe there's a couple of guys that shouldn't be there. But for the most of it, I like the idea, to be honest with you. I like the 54-hole thing. Um, I like the fans. Uh, it's a different vibe. You know, Bradley, we've been around this game for so long, and I, I do like the tradition. But I do think the day-in and day-out stuff is getting a little mundane. I do like events like um the phoenix open in scottsdale and that's what i think the liv is after right. i think that event is so successful that is one of the most successful events on the tour love it or hate it that's what i think the liv brings they're letting them wear shorts which you know not my favorite but uh they're letting people get out a little bit and to me, it works. So I, I like both. And I think that players ought to have more choices out there. I don't think they ought to be restricted. Oh, if it's a duck, he's got to do only things that a duck can do. You know, but the, the, the game is a, is a worldwide game. I mean, it's played everywhere. Tasmania, <laughs> you know, where you're pretty familiar with New Zealand, South Africa, China, Asia, South Africa, I mean, all of these places, Canada, why should we have the only tour? Why should the USA be entitled to have the best players in the, in the world every week? Why should that be? Shouldn't be that way. And that's what I think the LIV brings. It's bringing top-notch golf mainly to the USA, but it's going to be going to other places. Now with, with Leachy and, and Cameron Smith, it gives them a chance to spread their wings in Aussie a little bit. Maybe they're going to throw an event down there. Cameron Smith's you know, there. Cameron Smith's home right now. He went home to Australia because he doesn't have to do anything. Oh, I know. Isn't that great? I mean, so so they're they're beating up on him, and you know he wins the Players Championship and he wins the Open Championship. Oh, well, he must be all washed up, and yeah, he's just he's doing it for the money. Are you? That is so weak. It, it just blows me away. But 
folks out there listening, if you're only interested in American golf, it's a big world out there in golf. There's great golf in Japan. There, there's great golf in South Africa, great golf in Europe. And there's going to be great golf in Saudi Arabia and Dubai and all those United Arab Emirates. We don't I own think, it. But. I think that's one of the, the big benefits. And, and I look at, now I look and you look at the picture of golf as a world golf stage. So, you know, when they had the, I think they had the match play in Australia many years ago, maybe in 2000 or 2000. Yeah. No one yeah. went. Half the people didn't turn up. They didn't want to go down well, there. Was it Pierre Falky and uh, Steve Stricker or somebody that's, like that's that? That's correct. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that was the final. And, and, you know, you could be 100 and something in the world when you got in that tournament. They went down 40 spots past the, the rankings. So to a young kid growing up in Australia, I used to love, you know, I didn't, I miss you playing there, but I got to see Johnny Miller play and I got to see obviously Greg Norman, I saw Lee Trevino play. I, you know, all these guys that came down there that the the model now with the PGA too, if they don't take events somewhere else, people like me growing up in Australia, we're going to miss out. We're not going to get to see that type of player, you know, only on television. And the LIV are contracted, so I'm sure they have to play all these events. So if they go to Australia you've got 48 of the best players going there that the future kids and the future golfers get to see and watch and learn from. So how can that be a bad thing? Well, I will tell you this. The first time I ever played with Arnold Palmer was at Titarangi in New Zealand. First time I ever played with Jack Nicklaus, the Australian club at the Australian Open. Okay. Those guys. And then I was telling you that the Colgate, Tom Watson played there. Those guys aren't playing there anymore. The, the, you know, the, the number ones in the world, the Rory's or maybe, you know, Scotty Scheffler right now, they're not going there, you know, like Arnold, maybe, you know, and Jack and Tom Watson. The Aussie Open used to be, you know, Jack Nicholas played there often. I remember, you know, playing with Jack and in, in the group ahead of us was Miller Barber. And there were a lot of top players from America playing there. But I think the money is not there, okay? And so they're basically leaving that out of their schedule. I think Harold Var – didn't Harold Varner win a tournament in Australia? He won the PGA down there, correct. The PGA, right, yeah. So, um, you know, I think this is all good. I, I think that big-time golf deserves to be in all the places where we've got great courses, and certainly we have them in australia and I, I love the courses that we play here but i'm i'm tired of it i want to see other places that's what i like about you know golf channel and there's not a lot i like about golf channel because they've been slamming everybody that goes to liv they just been putting a curse on them but at least we're getting to see i got to see the bmw this weekend i love the fact that i can see european golf and in the fall i can see aussie golf and uh see some of these courses i just you know having played not quite around the world, but in most places in the world, there are some dang good golf courses out there that people ought to be able to see. And um, you talked about traditions before, you know, or we talked about traditions in the game. But in hindsight, there's not many traditions left. Like the clubs are all different. The courses are all different. They're lengthened. Um, you know, there's all these old traditions that just aren't there anymore, except they give out a trophy and a check on Sunday. That's basically it. So 
you know, the ally, the PGA and maybe a lot of its tournaments, while there's a history, there's no tradition anymore. But the LIV is new. It's going to have a history at some point. So I, I don't get that argument either. I don't get it either. Uh, can we just, like, give it a chance? What have there been <laughs> four tournaments right now? I mean, look, the Players' Championship was a joke for a while. You know, they used to have it at different golf courses. They're saying, do I have to play in this tournament? And now, because of you know, we played at uh, Sawgrass, uh, across the street from uh, the stadium course. That was a joke. I mean, a lot of players didn't even play there. They hated the course so much. But now that we're at the stadium course, wow, since 82 and Jerry Pate jumping into the water, that has become a tradition. I mean, it's not jumping in the water, but the golf course, now it's historic. Okay? It is historic. Uh so upping the takes, upping the prize money, upping the prize money every year doesn't help. Uh, doesn't hurt either, does it? No, but <laughs> that's the thing that I think people got to be saying. Well, wait a minute, where where did they come up with all this extra jack? Okay, come on. You know, now that LIV comes out, they're twenty five million dollar purses. Now I'm looking at eight purses of more than fifteen million next year. Fifteen million, and then there's a few twenties, and then a few twenty five. If LIV hadn't come in there, Bradley, there ain't no way we'd be paying for $20 million, $25 million anywhere, except maybe the Players' Championship, and that's it. The U.S. Open last year, you know what they played for? 12.5. U.S. Open, 12.5. Thank you very much. And LIV is playing for 25 each week. Stop. <laughs> so they are forcing – LIV is forcing these golf bodies – to up the ante because they've been basically sitting on it all this time, looking for ways to piss it away, like PIP. And that's the best example I could give to you. So what, what's wrong with 54 holes? I, you know, I, I used to play a lot of tournaments that were 36 holes. Or, you know, why, why the fascination with it's, it's not a 70-hole, 70 72-hole tournament? That guy, this is my favourite, uh, that guy's unfit. He can't play 72 holes anymore. <laughs> well, it worked. It, it, I'm not saying that the LPGA is a model, but I think 54 holes is fine. It's more of a sprint. You know, it's not a marathon. 72 holes, that's a long, long bunch of, you know, long time. Uh, the PGA Tour champions, I mean, that's how they set their whole thing up. They did no cut, 54 holes. Good enough for them. But if, uh, you know, guys in their prime do 54 holes, now all of a sudden they're a bunch of wankers and they can't play. They can't go 72 holes. You tell me these guys out here in 25, 26, they can't go 70. They'll do whatever you want them to do. But I, I, I see no decrease. Look, are we going to say that Shane Lowry has got to have an asterisk on his name right now because he won the BMW championship at 54 holes? No, they're not. So it's just whatever side you're on, you're going to find something wrong. And those guys are saying 54 holes doesn't constitute a, a real event. Baloney. It, it, they do it on champions. They do it on LPGA. And they did it just last week. So that's a, a, a low-lying argument right there to me. Do you know much about this uh, European or DP Tour and PGA Tour alliance? Because I, I have a little history about this that I wanted to touch base. You may not know this, but... 
Enlighten me, please. You probably do because of, you know, a lot of the rules and regulations. So I'm going to go back to 1996. I played in Europe um, on invites and stuff because I played well in Australia. I got my card. I came like a hundredth on the DP World Tour. So I had a card, full card for 1997. At the end of 96, I went to the US Tour School and got my card at Tour School. So now in 97, you know, I've gone from having no tour cards to having two of them. So, and of course, now I've got to go play Hawaii and I've got to go play the San Diego or the Buick or whatever it was and play a few of these tournaments to try and get my ranking up on the tour when basically at a Q school, if you get in an event, you kind of better go play it because you don't know when you're going to get in again. Damn so right. I knew I wasn't going to play in Bay Hill, Players, Doral. That was kind of when everyone kicked into gear. I was not going to get them out of Q school. And at the time, I was 25th alternate for the Honda. So I went and played in Europe. I went over there to play the Morocco Open and I was going to play the Portuguese Open because I wanted to play. I didn't want to sit a whole month out. And I um, I played Morocco and then I was about to go to Portugal, <clears throat> excuse me, and my manager got in touch with me and he said, you can't go to Portugal. I said, why not? And he goes, because 25 people pulled out of the Honda Classic over the weekend. So now your number's in and you can't get a release because Europe is not your home tour. Australia is your home tour. Have you ever heard of that one before? So I couldn't play. I knew, where the, I knew exactly where you were going with that, Bradley. I so knew that's, exactly where you were going with that. I don't understand how as me, you know, we basically independent contractors, so they say. But if I had two cards, why I couldn't get to choose when and where I wanted to play. And as long as I kept my card and fulfilled the 15 tournaments or whatever, I don't understand how that is a problem. But I was basically had to give up my European card to be able to play in America. And I'm a bit concerned about this new alliance that they're going to do because there's a guy like Ryan Fox from New Zealand has, yep. he's going to get his card on the PGA Tour through that top 10 alliance that they have. And he's going to end up in that same boat that I was in, that if he can't play a tournament in America, he won't be able to play the European one either because he's, Europe's not his home tour and New Zealand Australia is. See, that that's all this stuff is uh, the PGA Tour has always been one to react rather than one to trailblaze and to – and my whole thing with the tour is that I, I had one of those situations come up with me as well, like you did. I knew exactly where you were going. The, the, the thing that bothers me about the tour is that they're not malleable. They don't bend. They say my way or the highway every time. And my thing is that, you know something, besides the health insurance, you're not really paying me a god dang dime. You know, <clears throat> if I think I'm going to make more money in Portugal, damn, I ought to be able to go to Portugal. I ought to be able to do whatever I want to do because I'm not on any guaranteed salary from you. And, and that's the thing, you know, guaranteed to have a chance, you know, but at the Honda, say, you know, you're playing in a in a in an event there. You may miss a cut and make zero money. I doubt whether you'd miss a cut and make zero money at Portugal. You know, so so I think they maybe the big boys get treated a little bit different than the guys on down the 
the line. And that's the way I always felt. I mean, I had never applied for a release one time in my life. And I wanted to go try and play in the British Open. So I wanted to go the week before that, play in the Scottish. And I, I, I literally waited till the 11th hour to get a release. They said they weren't going to release me because there was, you know, I don't know, the BC Open or something. I don't, I forget what tournament was, but, you know, I said, guys, I've been playing in 35 tournaments a year since 1977. Okay. I'm not, I'm talking about, I'm the Sung JM of 1977 <laughs> through through 88. And these guys weren't going to give me a release. And they said, if you leave, you know, I said, Oh, are, are you kidding me? What value would I have at that tournament in America to, to not get a release to Scotland? And they said, well, you know, and I'm thinking, Holy mackerel. That's, that's the way the PGA tour operates them to do that to you, Brad. I mean, nobody will ever hear about it. Nobody will ever hear about it. That's like the Doug Barron thing. Do you remember Doug Barron? Yes. Doug Barron is now playing on the PGA Tour Champions, and he had a drug that he was using, and I think it was, you know, something that was not prohibited, but it was frowned on. Uh, it could have been HGH or something like that. And a guy, let's see, who else? Uh, Sean McKeel's on the exact same drug. Exact same drug. Sean McKeel. Love Sean McKeel. One of the PGA with one of the greatest shots ever. Under pressure. Remember that shot he hit? Yeah. And, kill. Kill. and Doug Barron has a has a condition where he needs that same drug and he, he did it. Well, the tour suspended him, okay, for like, I don't know, six months for illegal substance or something like that. And he says, you know, Sean McKeel is on the same stuff. What's the deal? So they're very arbitrary <clears throat> on what they do. Do you remember when Seve? No, you don't remember when Seve played the tour. I remember when Seve played the tour and this is how the PGA tour can deal. Seve was the Elvis Presley of golf. I'm telling you, this guy was the bomb. He was, I, I played golf with the guy. He had more charisma right there with Arnold Palmer. I know that's sacrilegious to say this, but Seve was the man. All right. Arnold Palmer. He had no, no disrespect to Arnold Palmer, but Seve was the guy. All right. At this time. They, Seve says, I can't play in 15 events. You want me to play in this tour? He says, you know, but I, I can't play 15 events. He's not, I'm just not going to do it, you know? And they said, well, Seve, how about if you play 12? And Seve says, 12? He says, hey, yeah, yeah, I think I can do 12. I think I can do 12. They made a freaking Seve Ballesteros rule so that he didn't have to play in his 15. He could play in 12, okay? This is during Dean Beeman's era, right? Or could have been the first couple of days of Tim Fincham's or whatever. No, These guys make deals. Huh? It would have been Beeman, yeah. They make deals. They make deals every day that we don't even know about. So, Seve Ballesteros, he played in nine tournaments that year. Okay? And they said, Seve, you know, if you don't, you don't do it, you know, uh, you know, you can't play here next year. He says, yeah, fine. That's no problem. That's fine. <laughs> he says, 12 is too many. <laughs> so I only play nine. That's fine. So, you know, he was still able to play in the U S open and the masters and the British open and the PGA. Okay. So what did they do? Did they kick him off the tour? Did they say you can't play in any of these tournaments? No. So I think that the PGA tour doesn't really have a leg to stand on unless to kick 
the LIV guys out of major championships. I just don't think they have a leg to stand on uh, without the illusion of collusion. Right. There it is right there. And so I, I just think that the DP tour has played this thing really wrong, as almost as wrong as the PGA tour has played it. I got to play with Seve once, so yeah, it was, that was one of my awesome, special days. One. I remember one of my friends, you'd know him, Mike Clayton from Australia. Sure, yeah. So Mike Clayton used to say, if there was four guys in a restaurant or some four guys standing out on the fairway or anywhere you wanted in the street and there was, and you looked at them and one of them was Seve, everyone would point to the, him and they'd go, that guy there, he's someone. Like his charisma, like you could tell that he was totally different. He had an aura about him. He really did. And I remember the first time I ever saw him, I was in, um, he, he was an 18 year old kid. I think I was 22 playing in Cron Sierra and he was on the bus that day. And I looked at this kid and he had a cool patience about him, 18 years old. And I said, Hey, who's that? He said, Oh man, that's Sevy. And dang it, within like one year, he was finishing second to Johnny Miller, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the, in the British open championship, I think it was, the, was that a Burkdale? Yeah. I think he was 19. He and, yeah. Yeah. 19. Yeah. So he was 18 when I met him and a year later he's in, he's finishing second in the open championship. So yeah, it was, it was quite something. So you mentioned, you know, who's dealt the wrong cards or probably gone about it the wrong way. What is the solution? Like how, how can they, because obviously they have to make it try and work eventually. You can't just have this, you know, or every interview here is one player bitching about someone else and this tour is against that tour and, and you're going to eventually create a bigger divide than what's already there. So how are they going to try and put it back together again and, and make it all about golf rather than about the tours? Well, this was way too simple, Bradley. There are these things called sponsor exemptions out there. And the sponsors have, what, eight sponsor exemptions these days? Possibly. I don't know for sure. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not sure how many of the BMW had last week. But I think if a, an LIV player has value, that he should be able to get sponsor exemptions to play in the tournaments that, you know, he has maybe an affinity to uh, over in America. That is if the tournament agrees to say, so if, if uh, who's a good example, Taylor Gooch, I don't know what city he's from. I should know. So Taylor Gooch is playing over it in, in there. Maybe his wife is from one town and he's from another town. Why can't he get a sponsor exemption to play in a PGA tour event? It's a sponsor's choice, right? If you're all about the sponsors, do something that's good for your tournament. BMW did something that was good for their tournament last week. I feel, I don't know why they allowed the LIV to play, but to me, that seemed to be a decent situation. So if you're not going to allow LIV players to play in any events in America, including, you know, the U S open, the master, God, I hope it doesn't happen. Why not take them to play in a few events? So, so right now there were eight events, right? Next year, there's going to be 14 events. So if, if John Rahm wants to play in the LIV, and I'm just hypothetically saying John Rahm wants to jump to LIV, 
is John Rahm enough of a draw over in America that you ought to let him play in four, five, six events? Hell yeah. So the way that Rory did it was because I guess DP is his world, is his home tour, or is it not his home tour? I I don't know. Yeah, that's correct. It's not fair because Rory jumped to our tour, the PGA tour, because the money was better and because he wanted to elevate his game and all this stuff. So the PGA tour didn't say, or the, the, the DP tour didn't say, Rory, you're not welcome here anymore. But Hey, they said this, Hey, if you want to come back, man, anytime, anytime you want to come back, that's fine. That's the way the tour should have handled it that way. You know, then if, if, if John Rahman decides to jump to the, to the LIV, then he still can have some sort of presence in America. Okay, he can support an event that might need it. He can, uh, you know, be a nice draw. So, yeah, maybe he shouldn't get to have his pick or anything, but it's got to be a sponsored type of thing. So I think I think the BMW had it right. And, yeah, uh, Rory said, I don't know how I can look these guys in the face anymore, you know, after they jumped to LIV. Well, that's your problem, Rory. You know, that's your problem. If you don't really want to face them, just don't don't show up. But don't don't beat up on Ian Poulter. Don't beat up on Sergio. I mean, what happened with Sergio, that wasn't a good thing. He got pissed off and left, right? Um, but don't get pissed off at Patrick Reed. Patrick Reed's played over in Europe. He's supported Europe before in some way, shape, or form. And uh, if those guys from LIV want to play, if they can get a spot, great. If they can't get a spot, great. But there is a sponsor, an obligation to the sponsor of that event that if he thinks that Taylor Gooch or Brooks Kepka or, you know, Bryson DeChambeau playing in Dallas, they ought to let them damn well play. That's my solution. It's a simple solution because now they're playing 14 events. They're not going to want to play in more than 18 or 19, I don't think. All right. Total. And I, I think that's that's a good point. But I do believe that even a sponsor, they select someone that has to be certified by the tour and, you know, they're not going to do it. <laughs> Well, that's a shame. Did DP uh, certify the BMW sponsors, uh, the, the the players that played in the uh, BMW? No, they didn't. No. All right. So, and, and I think I think Pelly is looking, and I don't even know the guy. I think he's looking like a lightweight in this whole thing. I mean, I had heard that Deshambo and DJ had applied for membership, and I, I'm I, this is on some good sources to the European tour, to the DP tour. And if you there's any way you can find out, I'd like to find out if that actually happened in Patrick Reed as well. That where, hey, if the PGA Tour is not going to let us play, then maybe I'll play in some of some of your events. At least it would allow the DP Tour to get get some more star power. Right. Um, I mean, does that make sense to you at all? Yeah, I mean, I mean I, why wouldn't everyone talks about having more of the best players playing together and right now it's not happening they're all splitting up and dividing and that's why i I just can't see the majors changing they they, obviously they're entity unto themselves but they want the best players they're not they shouldn't take sides no and i i think augusta no chance they're going to ban those players absolutely zero chance no chance whatsoever in my mind no one some of those guys, like I know, them, I just don't think they're going to risk, you know, eight of their guys not being able to play the Schwartzels and the Patrick Reed and DJ. 
you know, how many how many Masters champions are playing in LA and Sergio? Uh, yeah, I, I just think that'd be cutting off your nose to spite your face. And then with um, the the other majors, obviously, there's a lot more qualification processes in those than than Augusta is. But you know, I just I don't see how you can't just want the best players in the four main ones. It's It'd be like, well, I guess the US Open tennis did it, and I think Australia did it too. They ended up telling Djokovic not to come because of the the COVID stuff and all that. But uh, you know, you want your best players there. Does that make sense to you? Not at all. They're not allowing Joke Djokovic in there, and they're, they're letting people off the buses from the southern border in. And I'm not getting political. I'm just being practical here. This guy's an at a world class athlete. He's the best tennis player in the world. And he doesn't feel like a shot benefits him, and neither do all of the thousands of immigrants crossing the border illegally. But they're allowed to go in and, you know, into New York City and do all that stuff where Djokovic, in a controlled environment, uh, uh, you know, area, can't get in. That just seems to be pretty stupid to me. I don't know. But anyway, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> You got anything else you want to talk about on it? I've nearly run out of questions, but I'm sure there's... No, no, no. I'm good. I just, you know, my thing is that uh, I think Phil, we haven't talked much about Phil. You know, everyone over here was saying, oh, Phil shouldn't play anymore and he doesn't have the game anymore. He's just like one year removed from winning the PGA Championship. He's built up 30, 31 years of goodwill in America here, Okay. He's been a major champion, a great major champion. I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with everything he says or does or whatever, but he has helped the tour be what it's become, okay? He was the anti-Tiger. You know, I mean, you had Tiger fans, you had Phil fans. For 31 years, Phil Mickelson benefited this PGA Tour. Yet he, at age 50 or 51 years old, goes over where he knows – that kind of bonus doesn't come over in anymore. He ain't going to make that kind of money on the PGA Tour, is he? So he goes over there for the money, and now the PGA Tour just pretends like he never even existed. They don't say a word about him. I watched the Masters this year. They didn't say one freaking word about Phil. Maybe maybe one, okay? But very conspicuously, Phil has been shoved to the back back of the room period and i just think it's unfair and then with dj they say oh his best golf is behind him and you know with bryson it's something and with brooks it's something just let these guys go and if you welcome them back they'll be more inclined to come back but if i was brooks kepka or if i was you know uh if i was cameron smith over my dead body, would I ever go back to the PGA Tour after what they've been saying about these people? They just took his power spot away from him for the Players' Champion. They did? They took? Uh, oh. Cameron Smith? Yeah. Okay. There you go. Have it your way, guys. So if you think that's right, then God bless you. But to me, I don't think it's right. Yeah, apparently has a reserve spot there at Sawgrass with his name on it, reserved for the players champ and they took it down yeah they took it down but a tour player can, so i can go park there and that's right park. yeah it says two players only, only. 
what a joke. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure we'll get some feedback on this episode and maybe get some more questions, but we can do that another time. I'm going to let you go play some golf. You said you got to practice, get ready for Olympics. Yeah. My, my, my kids are 15 and 17, and uh, they're playing on the high school team. And uh, they're long and lanky like me. And it's really fun watching them grow in this game, man. It is so much fun. They're learning more about life just playing golf than they are at school. I guarantee you that. But we'll keep them in school for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great catching up, Mark. Thanks very much, mate. I love your insight and talking to you. And hopefully we'll get to do it again another day. You bet, Bradley. Keep doing the great things that you're doing, okay? Really appreciate it. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.